Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. Today is VBPH Sunday, where we feature a message that was recently preached from the pulpit of our church here in Virginia Beach, Virginia. You'll hear from Pastor Adam Dragoon and any other visiting preachers who have come through our church. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. Luke chapter 8, if you will join us there tonight. Luke chapter 8. And this message, uh, I'm starting to sound like a broken record or a skipping CD, if you don't know what a broken record is. Yeah, a lot of people don't even know what a skipping CD is. I'm starting to sound like a broken Spotify track. That this is a message that has come directly out of our Bible reading program and uh, that I was inspired as I was reading through it. And I want to encourage you. Uh, you know, when you read the Bible, you ought, to, you ought to be looking for things in there that you haven't noticed before. And this is just such a scripture for me. I've probably read it a hundred times before, but never really took the time to process it, digest it, understand it, think about it, and then enough for me to craft together a message that I think is worthy for the church to hear. And so I'm praying that God will help us and use this tonight to inspire some people. Luke chapter 8, if you join me there. Of course, you know that tonight is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and the two best teams in the NFL are facing off to decide who is going to lift the iconic Vince Lombardi trophy. And some of y'all are here tonight saying, yeah, would you hurry up? We already know. I want to see the rest of the game. The Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles are playing each other already. And uh, I heard earlier today as some commentators were preparing, doing the pregame shows and all this, They call the Super Bowl, or they call football, American football, they call it the ultimate team sport. And it's an interesting thought because each individual on each team is so dependent on so many other people. When we're talking about an NFL team, we are talking about an army of people. I just happened to look at the website for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, I'm a little partial to them tonight. Of course, you know, uh, you might know that Patrick Mahomes is their quarterback and their star player, and by the way, the NFL MVP of the season. That's kind of a big deal. But think about, for just a second, how many people need to do well in order for this guy to win that kind of an award. There are a whole lot of people that have to perform at the highest level possible in order to make Patrick Mahomes an MVP-level player. No, no, no doubt, he's skilled, he's talented, he's disciplined, and he's one of the best in the league, and maybe the best of all time, perhaps. But that cannot even be possible without the group of people that have been placed around him. I happened to look at their website and figure out how many people are on the team, Kansas City Chiefs. Does anybody know how many actual players they have? 71, I counted, including injured reserves. 
71 players. That's a lot of people. You know how many coaches the team has? 30 coaches. They have one head coach who gets all the press and gets all the questions and you know, has all of the responsibility on his shoulders, but he's got 29 other people helping him. Crafting plays, defensive, offensive, special teams. It goes on and on and on. 30 different coaches. Do you know how many people are considered executive directors of Kansas City Chiefs? There's a CEO, and then they have VPs. They're all listed on the website. I counted up 27 different vice presidents of all manner different uh, kinds of things, marketing and uh, sales and uh, whatever it is. There's tons of them. And so what I'm saying, just in those people we've talked about tonight, nearly 130 other people that have to be doing well at their jobs in order for a team like that to be in the Super Bowl and for a star player like Patrick Mahomes to get the spotlight. That's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of things. And you know the secret of winning in sports is that everybody has to be on the same team. They've all got to be working toward a similar goal. They've all got different roles, okay? You can't take a center and put him in the quarterback slot and expect him to do well. You can't take a tight end and put him on the defensive line necessarily and expect him to perform at the same level. Everybody's got to be doing their part and they've all got to be moving the same direction. You all with me tonight? So what if it was revealed, imagine for a moment, that there was even a group of three, let's call it 1% of 130, one and a half, maybe two people. Let's imagine that two out of the 130 were actually secretly trying to sabotage the team. Do you suppose that only two out of the 130 could possibly derail the success of the team if their scheme was not found out. Of course, only 1%. If there was only two people out of those 130 that I mentioned, if they began, instead of doing their part, if they began working against the team, or worse, to begin working for another team secretly behind the scenes trying to sabotage, do you think they could derail? and cause the team to fail. Of course they could. And that is why tonight, that when you look back through history, some of the worst hatred and indignation of history is reserved for those that are known as the traitors. Those who have turned their backs on the ones they were supposed to be working for. Going back to Roman history, et tu, Brutus? Caesar's nephew is the one who stabbed him in the back, laying in wait. He was supposed to be helping him. You have in American history, in revolutionary times, you, in fact, a lot of people use this man's name without even knowing the history. Why are you being such a Benedict Arnold? A man who turned tail on the American Revolution and uh, ran off to, uh, to become a British general again. Uh, by the way, he died in poverty because nobody would take him back in America after the Americans won the revolution. 
And of course, the greatest example of traitorous behavior of all is Judas. There is, uh, there's plenty of people today named Peter. Plenty of people today named John and James and Paul. Plenty of people named uh, uh, Titus. Right? There's lots of these big... Matthew, Mark. Why is it tonight that nobody names their little baby boy Judas? Because he stands for that issue of turning away from the one. I mean, if you're going to turn away from somebody, not the Son of God, this is a bad thing. And no wonder his name even inspires in us a little bit of anger today. So when it comes to what we're going to speak about tonight, when we begin to look at the church, we begin to look at a marriage or a family, we begin to look at society in general, there are some roles that God has called us to play. And when we begin to reject those God-given roles, we are not just working against ourselves, but working against God's divine order for how He created this place. And we find ourselves trying to sabotage the purpose and the plan of God. This is a profound instruction that we find in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to find an example here about how Jesus balanced the strengths of His followers in an incredible way. Why the ministry of Jesus was ahead of its time. And I want to read from Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, a little window into the preaching ministry of Jesus. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. And of course, the Bible says he took his 12 disciples with him. So far, nothing is surprising until we get to verse 2. Along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Whoa, Jesus brought her along? Verse 3, Joanna, wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. This is a message I've titled, Competing or Completing. And I want to pray for just a moment. Lord, we come by the blood of Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for your spirit, for your grace. I pray that we would all find peace and harmony. God, that we would find your spirit as we submit and surrender to the roles that you have designed us for. I'm praying, God, that you would help us to see areas that we have rejected those and that, God, that you would raise us up once again in power and authority in confidence in how you've created us, God, so that we can do your will and accomplish your purposes together in grace. And we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, amen. Competing or completing. And I want to talk about what Pastor Mitchell might have called a 12-cylinder word. And that word is complementarianism. Anybody heard it before? So it comes from the word complement, right? What do you say about people who complement one another? That it's almost like they're made for each other. That one completes the other. 
And so the idea of complementarianism is a biblical teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement, or in other words, to complete one another. The complementarian is someone who believes that gender roles that are found in the Bible have purpose and meaningful distinctions. And that when we apply them, when we embrace these roles in the home, in a marriage, in a church, in society, that this will promote the spiritual health and well-being of both men and women. When, it, when we will uh, do as God has created us, when we will act in a way that is uh, consistent with how we've been designed, that life seems to work well. That means if you take a big husky guy and you put him at the center in the line, and you tell him you throw that ball and then you don't move, keep anybody from moving past you, he's really good at that. But you can't take that same guy, put him out on the end of the line and call him a wide receiver, and expect him to run down the field with lightning speed and catch a ball that's flying 40 miles an hour. You're not going to have good results if you put the center at the wide receiver and then you take the wide receiver and put him at the center. Is that going to work out for anybody? Are the Chiefs going to win if they do that tonight? No, they're not. Because each one of those guys has been trained and has been cultivated and has been working for years to do the job that they are good at doing. It is also true that men and women have different strengths and different weaknesses. Is that okay for the preacher to preach in 2023? And that when we make a decision to embrace these divinely ordained roles of men and women, it will further the ministry of the church and it will help us to reach our God-given potential. Where, do we, where does the complementarian find support in the Word of God? Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over fish in the sea, birds in the sky, livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So even before we knew their names, even before we knew what their relationship would look like. What's the very first thing we know about these people? Number one, they're made in God's image. Number two, they are divided into male and female. This is the basic distinction, the understanding. Now, you would think that this would be obvious, but in 2023, this has become far from obvious, that there is a world around us today that is teaching that, that the roles and the distinctions of gender and, and, and sex is, is totally undefined and uh, is something that is malleable and you can wake up tomorrow feeling pretty if you're a man and you can call yourself a woman if you want to. And that society should not just accept that, but should celebrate that. 
And our current government today is not only uh, supporting that idea, but is exalting such individuals to positions of prominence. You can figure all that out on your own. But in the Bible, the very first thing we learn about people that is that they're made in God's image, number one, and that they are male and female, number two. That is so critical to our understanding of who we are. It is supported in the very next chapter, Genesis 2, 18. The Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. I will make him, the old King James, a help meet. Now some ladies might get offended by the language there. But as I've mentioned before, and I will mention again, the word there that is used for the word helper is the same word that God uses for Himself throughout the Old Testament. That God says, I am the one who is your helper in your time of need. The same way that we need God is the same way that this man needed somebody else. It is not a put down. It means that he needed her. And she needed him. This is what the complementarian believes. As we look at scriptures, we see that throughout the Bible, not just the Old Testament, the New as well, that God instructs for men and women to, uh, to embrace the roles that He has created us with. Now remember that these two verses I've quoted already in Genesis, this is before the fall. right? The fall happens in Genesis Chapter 3, that's where the serpent breaks in and beguiles Eve and deceives her and, uh, and lies to her and Adam eats of the fruit and uh, that's when the sin occurs and the fall and they begin blaming each other and covering themselves. There's a, a million different effects of sin on their, on their lives. But here's something that we know very well tonight. That before the sin, men and women... We're different. And that was good. Not only was it good, but it was God's design. And so the one result of sin is that the differences and distinctions between the genders are blurred. Right? Part of the curse was that God said to Eve that your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. In fact, there was something that shifted in the spiritual nature of the woman, that part of her fallen nature now is going to be a power struggle when it comes to submission in the home. God predicted that. But in the garden, before the sin, that these gender roles were distinct and they were good and they were designed by God. We see this in the New Testament. As Paul begins to teach us, we did our big study through the book of Ephesians. And it was in chapter 5 where Paul gave us the model and the design for how Christian homes are supposed to operate. In verses 21 through 33, you read it in your own time, but the summary is that God has given the role of a husband to rule over his family, to have a role of headship. And by the way, you can break it down. That word, husband, is, old, is an old word, and it's a compound word. The husband, it's short now for house bond. 
And what is a husband supposed to do? He is a bond. He holds things together like the glue. This is part of his role. It's in the very name. It's in the very title. He is the one who protects, nurtures, and humbly and sacrificially leads his family. He's not ruling over his family like a wicked lord. No, he is serving. The servant leadership that Jesus taught about is the role of the husband to care for and love his family. In that same scripture, we also learn about another role, the role of the wife in the home. The role of her nurturing her children and intentionally, willingly, submitting to her husband's leadership. And so when you find this relationship working the way it's supposed to, that a husband and a wife will complement one another. That when you bring a husband and a wife together, things are possible that were not possible before. In fact, God granted the gift of procreation only to this relationship. He made it special. He put His blessing on that. And new people can only come around in that precious bond of husband and wife. That's the way God designed it. And so, Paul goes takes this to another level when he says in the same chapter, he's talking about marriage, he's giving instructions to husbands and wives and children as well. And then at the end of it, what does he say? He says, this is all a mystery. I don't really understand it fully, but here's what I know, Paul says, verse 32, that this thing called marriage is supposed to be a picture that points to the relationship between Jesus and His church. And he says, when these roles, when the husbands and the wives, when the men and the women are living and making decisions the way that God designed, then he says that becomes a signpost for people to look at and say that is what Jesus and His church are supposed to look like. That's a huge responsibility in a role, isn't it? The idea of complementarianism then extends into the church as well. In the church, it would follow, you can do your own study in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, and I'll read to you the idea in Titus chapter 2, where it gives us these instructions for how Paul expects men and women to have different roles in the church. So verse 3, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander one another. Or be heavy drinkers. Hello. Instead, they should teach others what is good. Older women are great at teaching. Verse 4, these older women must then train younger women to love their husbands and their children. To live wisely and be pure. To work in their homes to do good and to be submissive or respectful to their husbands and they will not bring shame on the Word of God. Verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. You know why the Bible instructs young men to live wisely? I got thirsty. Because young men are often very stupid. I speak from experience. And so the idea there is that different instructions... For different genders. Old, older women. Younger women. 
younger men. And the idea there is that this is God's purpose and plan for different people, for different roles in the church. This is good. This is part of God's design. Biblically, the men in the church are supposed to bear the responsibility of spiritual leadership and training for the ministry. That is not easy to do. That is a hard job. And the women then are to exercise their spiritual gifts in any way that Scripture allows. That there are, in the New Testament, there are prophets that are women. There are teachers that are women. There are many different women in the New Testament involved in ministry. But there is one prohibition that seems like is the only one that gets any attention. And that is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. The only prohibition, the only limitation on the woman's ministry is that they are not to teach or assume authority over a man. So, when you have men in the church that are doing their part, that are rising up to provide spiritual covering and authority in the church, then you have women who are doing their part, then Christ is honored and the church can thrive. In fact, again, just like with marriage, when the church is operating in this way, when the men of the church and the women of the church are doing what they're supposed to do, then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes how the church itself becomes a living picture of the body of Christ. Again, is a symbolic uh, uh, symbolic gesture. It's showing the world what Christ looks like as the church, as men in the church and women in the church embrace their roles. Now the reason that I'm preaching about this tonight is because it came directly from this passage in Luke. And I was amazed to find here how Jesus began to include not just His 12 disciples in His preaching ministry, but the Bible very clearly states that He also brought about a group of women. And, you know, um, I've been uh, pleased to see this depicted so well in the Chosen TV series, that how integrated that they, the, the, the women, the female followers of Jesus were in the group. And I believe that's accurate. I think that, that uh, Mary of Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus and, and different ladies, and obviously we have some named in our Scripture here. Let's think about this for just a moment. Jesus is going to go preaching. He's going to go spread His message in different cities. Now, the Bible first of all says, who does He need to bring with Him? It's His 12 disciples. These are the men that He has chosen that are going to become the leaders of the new church. And so it's obvious that He needs them to be there. Let's pause for a moment and be reminded how desperate it is for men, and specifically for young men, to rise up in the church and take their place. How desperate it is for young men to find their calling and their purpose in the church of Jesus Christ. It is not enough. I'm grateful for ladies. We're going to get to you in just a moment. But if there is a lack of men doing what they're supposed to do, the church cannot continue. Bottom line. There is a spectacle in the modern world, maybe the last 30 to 40 years, of churches 
that are dominated by women. And this uh, is a far cry from what Jesus established. Jesus brought 12 disciples. In fact, as you're studying the, uh, the Jewish culture of the time, and even to this day, that you cannot establish a Jewish synagogue unless there are 10 men who are committed to faithfully meeting every Sabbath day. 10 men. That's the measure. As soon as you have a community of Jewish believers, there's 10 men present. Now we can have synagogue meetings. And until then, we're, you're going to have to find another synagogue because we can't have one of our own. Uh, you know, I, I kind of wish that we would have the same rule for our church services. That we can't, if we don't find 10 men who are on time and in prayer and dressed and sh- looking like a human being, until we have 10 men, we're not going to have church service. Now, I'm not going to institute that rule, but it's a good principle. We need the men of character and wisdom to lead and set example for the rest of the congregation. Hello, somebody. So that is obvious in this scripture. It's obvious in the ministry of Jesus. He chose 12 men to lead his church. And it's interesting that there's no women included in that group. However, as we read in this scripture, it's interesting to me that Jesus also included in his preaching ministry those who are going to come with him in this traveling troop, there are devoted women. The Bible specifies three of them here. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. I can picture Jesus handing the microphone. I know he didn't have a microphone. But handing the microphone to Mary Magdalene. We're going to have Mary give a testimony now of what I've done in her life. Preach it! I can, I can imagine Jesus giving her that opportunity to tell her testimony. You have in verse 3, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager. So here's a lady who knows how to keep the books. Here's a lady who's responsible. Here's a lady who's trustworthy. And Jesus is not saying, stay at home in the kitchen, girl. No, he's saying, I I need you to take care of some of this for me. And then you have in verse 3, Susanna, named. We don't know what she was doing. But she's named Susanna and many others who were contributing, watch this, from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. This is incredible. You know, Jesus was a carpenter. He knew how to make money. He knew how to support himself and his mother. But when he started his ministry, he gave himself and devoted himself fully to that, as he should have. That means he didn't have income. That means he was dependent on the needs, uh, on, the, on the generosity of others. He was dependent on others supplying for their needs. And he called the disciples, remember? He said, uh, he, he said to, uh, to Peter and to Andrew, he said, come and follow me. And the Bible said they left their nets. They left them behind. They were fishermen. That's how they made money. That's how they supported their families. But they left that behind to follow Jesus. Well, how are they going to eat? They've got to have people who trust in their ministry enough to supply their needs. And the Bible specifically says here that there is a group of women who are contributing out of their own resources, who are giving of their own 
material goods to support the ministry of Jesus and His disciples. Can I be honest with you tonight? Some of the most faithful people I have ever encountered are women who faithfully and secretly, without any seeking any attention, who are giving to the needs of the church, to world evangelism and church planting. They'll, they'll never stand up here and preach a sermon. But it's because of their generosity, because of secretly their sacrificing, they're, they're taking hard-earned money, and even single women and, uh, and ladies who are married to unsaved husbands, and many times... Uh, in difficult situations, and single mothers in various different situations, and as they support the church, man, things are able to happen because of their own resources. Jesus took time to highlight the widow who took her two nickels and dropped them in the offering at the temple. He said she has given more than all the rest. What I'm saying to you tonight is that it's so great for me that these women are included in the roll call of those who were part of Jesus' ministry. It displays to us the balance of the different roles even there in the preaching ministry of Jesus. And it would have been very progressive for the time. Do you know why? Because at the time, women in the ancient world were not given the same level of respect and dignity as we would expect today. Let's just be real. At the time that Jesus was on the earth, if there was a court, if there was a, uh, if there was a, a courtroom and uh, they were having uh, uh, eyewitness testimony, do you know that in the time that women were not allowed to give eyewitness testimony before a court of law? Do you know why? Because they said that women, their testimony was unreliable. We don't even want to hear what they have to say. You've got to bring in men if you want something reliable. No self-respecting Jewish rabbi at the time certainly would not include the ministries of women in their preaching. But the fact that Jesus did, it says something about his ministry that it is designed to include all people. And so, I need to wrap this up quickly so we can get to our game. The opposing view of complementarianism is another 12-cylinder word called egalitarianism. And that is the view, that is the idea that all people are inherently equal and ought to be treated as such. Now the Bible does teach, for example, that all Christians are equal in the eyes of Christ, regardless of race or gender or ethnicity. Galatians 3.28 says that we are all one in Christ. And I believe that. I will say yes and amen. At the cross, we are all equal before the Lord. Is that right? That there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor Greek before the Lord. That all of those differences and distinctions of heritage and race melt away. We all find equal footing at the cross. But some people take that truth and apply it where it should not be applied. For example, when it comes to the different roles in the church. And the most common way that people bring this up is when it comes to speaking about women as pastors or preachers. And the idea is that all Christians are equal in the eyes of Christ. And so it's okay for 
males and females to occupy the same positions in spiritual roles of leadership in the church. Now, I want to say tonight quickly, the question is not, are women able to preach? Are women able to preach? Women are able to preach. In fact, I've heard some good preaching from women, sometimes better than my own. The question is not, are women able to preach? The question is, are they given the God-given role of teaching and preaching and leadership in the church? I am not saying tonight that women should not study the Bible. You need to have your own relationship with the Word of God, every female here. You need to study. You need to be approve the Word. You need to be fed just like everybody else. It doesn't mean that you don't have a place at the feet of Jesus. Remember the story Mary and Martha. That uh, Martha was busy doing the dishes and cooking the dinner. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? When Martha began to complain, Mary has chosen the better. That what Mary is doing, she is learning, she's growing, she is uh, taking part in the ministry of Jesus, she, even to the detriment of the, the housely duties. Jesus said, that's okay. The point here tonight is not, are women able to preach? The point is, are we fulfilling the roles that God has given to us? And if that becomes a point of contention, what can happen very quickly in a church is that we can begin competing. Instead of complementing or completing one another, there becomes a spirit of competition between the sexes. And God never intended it for, for that to be. Every growing church ought to have young men and young women that are both hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for the will of God, for the Word of God, and knowing what God has called them to do. The difference between competing and completing is only one little letter. But you've got to be careful about that little letter. Complementarianism comes from the word complement. And that word simply means to make complete or to make whole. And the point of this message tonight is that when men are doing what they're supposed to do, when we are leading, when we are carrying responsibility, when we are covering and protecting, and we are loving our wives, well, that makes it a whole lot easier for the, for the women of any church to do their part as well. Now, I realize that there are situations, for example, people will bring up the prophetess Deborah in the Old Testament. Say, well, she was a prophet. That's a spiritual role of leadership, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the thing about Deborah is that there was no men. Nobody available. That she even goes to another man, and his name was Barak. And he said, brother, we need your help. Would you lead us in the battle? And poor little Barak, he says, oh no, Deborah, oh please, you do it. And this is so reflective of so many weak, weak-minded men in the church today who are more than willing to give up the God-given role of authority to the lady who is well capable. The only reason that she took on that role of leadership is because of weak-minded men around her. Wouldn't do it. And so out of necessity. And we have respect for her as a prophetess. 
she did what God called her to do in that season, but that is an exception, not the rule. When we are doing our part as men, and when you as women are doing your part, then the pieces fit together perfectly so that something beyond what we can do on our own is able to take place. Just like, as I mentioned earlier, when men and women come together in holy matrimony, they are capable of doing something that no other relationship is capable of doing. Making new human beings. That's like really important. And it is also true in a church that when men are providing the role of of leadership and when women are providing their role of support, oh, I want to tell you, a church is able to go above and beyond. So the answer tonight is not a church full of piss and vinegar young disciples and no ladies. The, The other opposite end of the spectrum is a church full of, you know, Praise the Lord, a bunch of ladies and no men. The answer is a balance between the two. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. We see it all throughout the New Testament. And we have to, tonight, we have to embrace that in the church today. We're going to bow our heads for just a moment and close our eyes. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless. God bless.